Thank you, Bob. I appreciate the prayer and the uh, clear as uh, the Boston Harbor directions that you gave. Is it Peach and Kathy? You know what you're doing now. No, I know that one. Oh, you know this one? Yeah, I know that. St. Louis, you in mourning right now? You are in mourning, right? They lost to the Chicago Cubs. Go over the section there. Chicago Cubs, the last team that the last team in baseball that only played day games. You remember that day? Yeah, no, they never had any night games. They didn't have any lights in their stadium. You were a major league player for the Cubs. Every game you played at home was in the daytime. They had one of the great third basemen of all time. Who was that? Ernie Banks? See third baseman? Ernie Banks? No, no. St. Louis, not Yogi Berra? Huh? You know Yogi, don't you? Why do you know Yogi Berra? He didn't play for St. Louis. He lived in St. Louis. He lived on the hill, didn't he? Yeah, I was up there and he ate a couple of Italian restaurants. Anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about this. Craziest thing I've, I've got myself into a hole and I can't get out. Ernie Banks played for the Cubs and he would, uh, they'd play a game and he would, uh, he would end up uh, just like he would play another one. He loved baseball so much. He wanted to play a second game all the time. So anyway, well, we've had a great weekend, very interesting weekend. Daniel and Renee came up from um, Houston with their new baby, six-month-old baby. And it's been quite an experience. Uh, every time Lynn comes into the room and opens her mouth, the baby cries. Every single time. Smiles at me, but she cries. All Lynn has to do is look at her and she cries. Lynn can be behind her and open her mouth and she cries. So I've decided I'm putting Lynn out on the porch on Halloween so no one will come by her That's it for me. Okay, so anyway, we are in John 18. So take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 18. It's a very interesting chapter. In fact, this begins the, the final section of John's Gospel. And it covers chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21. And in this portion of John's Gospel, we will look at today, we will look at the arrest uh, and the trial of Jesus before religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. So let's look at these arrests. And uh, there's some background material I think will be interesting. If you look at verse 1, it says, this is chapter 18 of the Gospel of John in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these things, that was the things that he spoke in chapters 13 through 17, all of his teaching during the Lord's Supper. When he spoke in these words, he went out with his disciples, meaning from the upper room, over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now the Gospel of John never mentions that this garden is Gethsemane. That word is not found in the Gospel of John. Uh, he does not mention that Jesus gets down on his knees and prays in the garden, and that the disciples sleep. John doesn't deal with any of that. Rather, he mentions the brook Kiron. Now, why in the world would you bring that into the story? It's because it has a very significant place in Israel's history. 
Uh, you know the story of King David and how his son Absalom tried to take over the throne. He led a coup against his father. And King David's most trusted counselor, a guy by the name of Ahithophel, sided with the enemy. And he turned, he betrayed King David. He turned against King David. And as a result, David has to flee for his life. He has to leave Jerusalem. And that story is found in 2 Samuel. And I want you to take your Bible, keep your part here, turn to 2 Samuel and chapter 15. So, way back in your Old Testament. You get kings, you've gone back too far. You go to the next book over Samuel, isn't it? It's a Samuel case. Samuel case. So, 2 Samuel, and look at chapter 15. 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 15. So the story is, Absalom turns on his father, leads a coup. David's trusted counselor, betrays him, sides with the enemy. David has to flee. Look where he flees. You're in 2 Samuel chapter, let's see, 15, let's, I think it's 14. You just see what it is. Yeah, uh, 15. 1523. Now look at that. All the country wept with a loud voice because of what was going on. And all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over. Look where he crossed over. He crossed over what? The brook Kidron. Do you see that? So here's the king of the Jews, David. 2 Samuel 15, 23. Uh, he crosses over the brook Kidron. That's the king of the Jews. Now we have Jesus, king of the Jews. Where does he cross over? Brook Kidron. Okay. Now, look at Ahithophel, the guy who betrays David. Look what happens to him. Look at chapter 17. And when you get to 17, look at it, verse 23. King David prevails. And it says, Now when Hizophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled the donkey, rose up, went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order, and what did he do? You know anybody else that hanged themselves with the traitor king of the Jews? Judas. So when the Gospel writer John writes the story, he wants you to think back to another time when a king of the Jews had been betrayed, and his, and his betrayer commits suicide by hanging. So now we look at Jesus' betrayer. Look at uh, the Gospel of John chapter 18. And look what it says here in verse 2. So it just skips from Jesus going to the garden in verse 1. Tells nothing else of what happens in the garden. Next thing you see is the arrest. John just jumps right to that event. And look at verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him also knew that place. He knew where Jesus had gone, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops, and the key word there is the, is the word band or detachment, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Notice that Judas is in charge. And he's leading a group like a posse and they're following him 
It's made up of a band of troops. These are Roman soldiers. And the word band or detachment refers to a group of up to 600 soldiers. And at least 200 soldiers made up a band or detachment. So if you're going to send out a detachment of troops, or a band of troops, you would send out at least 200, but it could be between 200 and 600. Now remember, Jesus has 12 apostles. Jesus, you don't know how many other people are with him if you're a soldier. And so you're going to arrest him. You know, you're probably going to have a fight on your hands. So you can send a lot of soldiers. Okay. The next group there are called officers of the chief priest and the Pharisees. And these are temple police. These are the police that, uh, you know, make sure that the affairs of the temple are safe. There's security guards in a sense. And whenever there's a big feast, like the Passover feast, there's a lot of these temple police and they are, you know, guarding and making sure things go without, you know, incident. So they are the temple police. Now notice they have weapons with them. The soldiers would be carrying swords. Roman soldiers carried swords. The police, the temple police carried batons. There's one that you beat somebody over and stop a riot, okay, but they weren't trying to kill somebody. So those are the weapons. They come out with torches and lanterns. Now, those of you who have been with us for a while know that John's Gospel, one of the key themes of John's Gospel is light and darkness. It's dark. It's around 11.30 at night, and it's dark, and they come out, and they're lighting the atmosphere with this artificial light. And they're going to arrest this guy who claims to be the light of the world. So John is throwing in these light motifs here. Okay, look at verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, he had prophetic insight, that would, have, that would come upon him, went forward. Uh, Jesus goes out and he meets them. He does just the opposite of what the troops expect. Because, you know, hey, if you have 10 or 12 police cars zooming down a road or a street at night with their lights spinning and their sirens going, you see them blocks away. Now imagine a couple hundred soldiers and temple guards, and they have these lanterns, and they have these torches, and Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives, guess what? You can see them, you know, a mile away coming. And you know they're coming after you, and so what's your tendency? Your tendency is to run, or to hide. But guess what? That's not what he does. He does just the opposite of what they expect. He goes out, and he meets them. He walks out of the grove of trees, and he meets them head on. And look what he said to them at the end of verse 4. Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now, here you have 600 to about 12. That's the odds. He says, who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, I am he. Judas is standing with them. He's not standing with Jesus and the others. He's standing with the enemy. He sides with the enemy. Okay. So that's very significant. Notice you don't have Judas giving Jesus a kiss, as you have in the other Gospels. He's just standing with him. John doesn't go into all that. 
He's not interested in the kiss, okay? He's interested in the fact, not that Judas kisses Jesus, but Judas stands with the enemy. That's what he wants to make, that's the point he wants to make, and you're going to see why he wants to make that point in a few minutes. Okay? But just follow along with me. Now look at verse 6. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell on the ground. So now we have these few hundred guys who want to arrest Jesus. They've come with their weapons. And when he says, I am, and he uses that name that God, the name that God reveals to Moses. When Moses says, who should I say sent me? He says, tell them that I am that I am sent you. And that's what Jesus said. When he said, I am, suddenly the splendor and the power of God just went forth and they all fell back on him. That's the power of the word. And they all fall and none is left standing. Now let me ask you a question. Who's in control of this situation? Is it, is it this uh, 200 to 600 million army? Or is Jesus in control of the situation? Now at this point, if Jesus wanted to, guess what he could have done? He could have started whistling and walking away. He could have spent his watch, you know, and walked away. But that's not what he does, right? Uh, so what we see here is we see this contrast. We see the contrast between Satan's representative, Judas, who's leading the way and has all the power of the world at his disposal to arrest Jesus. Batons, swords. And you see God's representative, Jesus, and what he has is the power of the word. And the power of the word is much more powerful than the power of the sword. And this is one of the great... Uh, demonstrations of nonviolent resistance that's described in the Bible. It's a resistance. They fall down. He is resisting them, but it's a nonviolent resistance, and the world cannot stand up against it. Literally, stand up against it. Uh, and when you see something like this, you start asking yourself questions about Christians. Why is it that we always have to? We rely on all the devices and the weapons of the world to. Defend ourselves, you know, uh, when we should know that there's a power in the word we just believe, but we don't really believe. It. We say we believe, but we really don't. Look at verse seven. Then he asked them again, "Well, whom are you seeking?" This is good. They said Jesus of Nazareth, and he answered, "I told you, I am He." He uses the same words. Okay? I told you I am he. Now I imagine when he says I am again, they brace themselves. <laughs> you know? Or maybe they don't brace themselves. Maybe they're still down on the ground. They've never gotten up. You know? That's a possibility. Doesn't say they got up, does it? They may stay. <laughs> you know, he may have been looking down at the captains. Well, who are you hunting for? And they said, Jesus. He said, well, I am he. So it's a very interesting scene right here. And he's going to use that. He doesn't run. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't knock them down again. He wants to use that power that he has, the power that comes from God, uh, and leverage it in order to protect the apostles. And that's what you're going to see here in verse 8. In verse eight. He says this, Therefore, if you seek me, and the word me there is emphasized in the Greek if you seek me 
let these go on the way. Because I'm the one that you want. So he's using that power that he has to protect the apostles. And John gives us an explanation. He said that he said that that the saying might be fulfilled which he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And that's a quote that Jesus that's a quote from Jesus back in John 6. He said, All that the Father gives me, I lose none. And here we see that he loses none even in this situation. So uh, Jesus uh, has promised that he would lose none. He's going to protect his disciples. We saw that last week. And he comes through on his word. He is protecting his disciples. So far, so good. Right? Are you still with me? So far, so good. Until Peter decides to get into the situation. We always know he can mess things up. And he does it royally in this situation. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, you can almost hear it. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, let me ask you this, just, just to throw out a question. Why do you think Peter would do this when Jesus had everything in control? No need for him to pull out any sword. Jesus has, Jesus has everything in control, and he's just got a guarantee that the, his disciples would be protected, right? They're going to be let go. So why does Peter suddenly pull out his sword and just start swinging, and he cuts off this guy's ear? See? Uh, it's obvious at this point that Peter doesn't understand that the kingdom of God comes in through nonviolence, not through violence. He's still looking for a Messiah who's going to violently overthrow Rome and set up God's kingdom. God's kingdom doesn't come in that way. In fact, when it ultimately comes, the book of Revelation says, And I saw the Son of Man sitting on a white horse, and he defeats the Antichrist and all of this, because of a sword that comes out of his mouth, which is the what? Word of God. Notice the kingdom is set up through a word of God. It's not set up through violence. Peter is still thinking, according to that old paradigm, that the Messiah would literally overthrow Rome through violence. Now, so why does Peter do this? Jesus is guaranteed his safety? Jesus is... Is it because he's foolish? Is he stupid? Is it because he's brave? Brave? Yeah. All of the above? <laughs> Brave? Foolish? Brave? What is it? Does he think that his one sword and the ten other guys and Jesus, he's going to use the, that that's going to defeat 600 men? I mean, obviously he has to be stupid to come up with that idea. What's he doing here? See? Yeah, it's a guy who acts before he thinks. There's no doubt about that. Now, a couple things I want you to see. First of all, Peter cuts off the guy's right ear. Why in the world would John make that a point? That he cuts off his right ear. Now, if I cut off Joe's right ear, now watch this. I take my sword, and I go like this, and I hit Joe's face at me. Which ear would I be cutting off? I'd be cutting off his left ear. So either Peter's left-handed, and I don't think that's the case, because if Peter was left-handed and cut off his right ear, he wouldn't have had to make the point that he cut off his right ear. It'd been obvious, right? So the only way a right-hander can cut off somebody's left ear is if that person has their back to them. 
So here's Peter attacking somebody. <laughs> he's got his back there and he just whacks his ear off. He gets in a swing. So that's why John wants you to realize that Peter might not be as brave as you think. You know, he's getting in a sucker punch here. And uh, <laughs> see what happens. So anyway, second thing that John does that no one else does. Everybody mentions that he cut off some ear, but they don't say right ear. John says that. John is the only gospel writer that mentions the man's name, which is Malchus. So, obviously, John knows this guy. John knows the guy and knows his name. Somehow he knows who this character is. So we're going to see why that is in a minute. So, there's Peter and he does it. Now you get Jesus' reaction. Look at verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. <laughs> Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And the answer is yes. And Jesus is talking about the cup of suffering. He says, I have to suffer. This is God's will for me. By resisting and cutting off the ear, you are fighting against God's will. You are fighting against God's plan. You're trying to bring it in your way. So uh, you can't bring it in your way. Put the sword away. So that is that scene. Verse 12 says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers arrested Jesus and bound him. So this is going to be the end of the first section here in uh, 18. That Jesus is arrested and he's bound. Today we'd say they put him in handcuffs. They put his hands behind his back and they handcuffs took him away. But in those days, the way you bound somebody was a little rougher than putting them in handcuffs. That you took the person's right arm and you put it up behind their back and you shoved it up between the shoulder blades. And then you took the other arm and you did the same thing and you bound them and that's how they were and they couldn't move. Very painful situation. So they bind Jesus and they take him away. That's verse 12. Okay, so now we come to the trial, beginning in verse 13. The trial before Jewish authorities. And so let's just look at that in verse 13. It says this. And they led him to Annas first. To Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So we're introduced to two people here. First one is Annas. Annas was the high priest up until 15 AD, and he got fired by the Romans. He did something the Romans didn't like, and he got fired, and they appointed Caiaphas to be the high priest. So Annas is an older man. He's the power. He, he's the man who's really the power behind the, the, the priest. And then you have Caiaphas, his son-in-law. Okay? And he would be younger. And he's the present high priest. But guess who they take Jesus to first? They take Jesus to Annas first. Even though he's not the present high priest, he's the power broker. And we know from history that Annas owned the concession stands in the temple that were located in the court of the Gentiles. These were the stands that Jesus overthrew the previous Sunday. <laughs> this guy wants Jesus arrested. 
And uh, in fact, those concession stands were called the Bazaar of Annas. If you wanted to get a lamb to sacrifice, you had to go to the Bazaar of Annas to buy it. And so he got, he was you know, raking in the dough uh, at every festival because you had to buy stuff from his concession stands for temple sacrifice. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was the present high priest, was the one who sent the soldiers out, or the temple police out, previously, back in a previous chapter, and said, arrest him and kill him, but it was unsuccessful. This guy's sort of a failure. But his father-in-law, he'll take care of everything. So that's what the situation is. And now what happens is Jesus is before ends. <clears throat> the power broker behind Jewish authority. Now the scene switches. Now look at verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, that disciple, the other disciple, was known to the high priest. You see that? And went in with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter, he stood at the door outside the courtyard. So now we are introduced again to two people, this time a disciple who we believe is the Apostle John, uh, and he has a relationship with the high priest. He knows the high priest. And tradition says that John's father, who owned a large fishing concern, supplied the high priest with saltwater fish. And he had an office and a residence in Jerusalem. And so they were on, they had a business relationship. The Apostle John probably delivered the fish. This guy knew John. In fact, there used to be a small church that marked the spot of John's father's residence in Jerusalem. In fact, today there's an Arab coffee shop with a little plaque that says, this was the home of the Apostle John's father in Jerusalem. So, we think that this is the Apostle John. He gets right in. He goes into the door, into the courtroom, yard of the palace where Annas is and uh, lives. Uh, but Peter, he stays outside the courtyard. He doesn't get inside. Okay? But then look what happens at the end of verse 16. Then the other disciple, who was known by the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and got Peter in. <laughs> That's the kind of friend you want, right? Somebody who has a little bit of influence. He brings Peter inside. Look at verse 17. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, Aren't you one of this man's disciples also? You see the word also? Are you not also one of this man's disciples? Are you? He said, I am not. Now, why does Peter say he's not one of the disciples when it's obvious the girl knows that John's one of the disciples and she says to Peter, aren't you also, like John, aren't you also one of his disciples? It's obvious that you are. Why does he say, no, 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 that's not me. This guy who just bravely cut this guy's ear off in the back. No, it's not me. It's, it's an amazing story when you really think of how the what's happening in, in, in real time, in a sense. So, look at, look at verse 18. 
Now the servants and the officers, now we have the temple guard who were there, who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Wait a second. That is not a good sign. Why not? What does it say? It said, Peter stood with him. What does it say back in verse 5? Judas, who betrayed him, what? Stood with him. Stood with him. Notice how John repeats that phrase, and he now links it to Peter. That's not a good thing to be doing, standing with the enemy. So, that is how John wants you to know that Peter's having some problems. Now we switch back to the palace. Look at verse 19. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and doctrine. Well, we get into the questions. He has two questions for Jesus. Tell me about your disciples. How many do you have? He wants to know whether we're going to have a problem with these guys. Are they planning a revolution? Where are they staying? He asks all these questions about the disciples. You can come up with the questions that he asks, but he probes about the disciples. And then he says, what about your doctrine? What are you teaching? You know, he's trying to determine whether Jesus is a false prophet, you know, cult leader, or whatever. He's trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. That's what he's trying to do. Get Jesus to fall into some kind of trap. Then if you can label somebody a heretic, then you've got to avoid them. Put them to death. So look at verse 20. Jesus answered. And it's really a non-answer in some ways. Jesus answered and he said... <coughs> I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues, in public places, and in the temple, where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. I've never said anything secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I've said. So Jesus basically refuses to answer the questions of Annas. And what he says is, if you want to know answers, bring in witnesses. Because what Jesus is doing, he's protesting this entire event. This entire event is an illegal event. It's taking place at midnight. In America, we have night court. The Jews did not allow night court. That was illegal. Courts had to be held in the daytime. Jesus is protesting that the high priest is trying to force him to incriminate himself. In America, we have something called the Fifth Amendment. And uh, they had that too. You were not allowed to get somebody to testify on his own behalf if it would incriminate him. And that's what this guy is trying to do. He's trying to trap Jesus. And you couldn't level charges without witnesses. So guess what Jesus is saying? Bring in the witnesses and level your charges. Let's have some eyewitnesses of what I've done, what I've done wrong. So he is arguing against this illegal trial, and he refuses to be entrapped by self-incrimination. And then look at verse 22. And when he had said these things, and when he responded that way to Annas, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? What are you, some kind of smart aleck? Who do you think you are? the response that he gets. And then look what happened in verse 23. Then Jesus answered him and said, if I've spoken evil, guess what you must do? What? 
Bring in a witness. You see that? Bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike? Uh, why do you strike? Either let me go or bring in witnesses and level the charges. All Jesus wants is a legitimate trial. And then verse 24 says, Then Annas couldn't get anywhere with Jesus, bound him and sent him to his son-in-law. And that is, then we have what we call Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. That is an official trial. And um, John will not talk about that. That's found in the other Gospels. He just lets you know that he has this trial before the son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's the present high priest. Uh, but he won't give us any details about that. And then guess what happens? In verse 25, the scene switches once again. Okay? So now we're going to go back out into the courtyard. Okay? What's happening when this is happening to Jesus? What's happening with Peter? Okay? So look at verse 25. It says this. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. <clears throat> Therefore, he said to him, they said to him, that's those around Peter, you are not also one, notice the word also, you're not also one of the disciples, are you? He denied it, said, I am not! Okay, so what we have is we have two scenes. We have Jesus in the palace. We have Peter in the courtyard. We have Jesus who says constantly over and over again, I am, I am, I am. We have Peter saying, I am not, I am not, I am not. We have Jesus in total control. We have Peter totally out of control. We have Jesus who stands tall and brave. We have Peter who cowers under the pressure. So we have these two, two contrasting pictures. And verse 26 says, Then one of the servants of the high priest, and I love this, a relative of him whose ear was cut off by Peter said did, now watch the wording did I not what? see you Look, did I not see you in the garden with him? now who's really on trial here? Is Jesus have they given Jesus a legitimate trial? no, because they don't have what? they don't have any witnesses how about Peter? There's a witness. <laughs> He's the one that's being tried here. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> they're not really trying Jesus. In fact, Annas has to just push him off. <laughs> but Peter, they actually have an eyewitness that saw him do it. He said, well, I saw you do that. Then Peter, in verse 27, says, Peter denied again, even though there was an eyewitness he did lie at this point. And the rooster crowed, more literally the cock. Now, that gives us the time frame when these events happened, because Romans had four night watches. When the sun went down, they would have a watch between uh, 6 and 9 p.m., and that was called the first watch. And then they had a watch, and then they changed guards, and they had a watch between 9 p.m. and midnight, and that was called the midnight watch. And again, they changed guards. And then they had a watch that lasted between 12 and 3, that was called the cock crow. That was the third watch. And then they had a fourth watch between 3 in the morning and 6 in the morning when the sun began to come up. So uh, most roosters don't crow at 3 in the morning. So the question is, was this a rooster? Although there's, there's been a case or two where roosters were actually uh, heard crowing at 2.30 in the morning in Jerusalem. 
But according to the Jewish law, no chickens or roosters were allowed in the city. You couldn't have them in the city. They had to be outside the city gate. So this may just simply mean that these events took place at the third watch, which was called the cock crow. And it had to do with a trumpet blowing. It sounded like you know, a rooster crowing. So anyway, so there's the scene. So we have the arrest of Jesus, and we have the trial of Jesus, or we might want to call it the trial of so when we look at this, uh, we have to say, okay, well, what, does, what does this have to do with us? Where do we fit into the story, you know? So I jotted down yesterday a couple ideas, and I thought, well, uh, who do you identify with when you read this story? Do you identify with Judas, who uh, betrayed his friend? So I never betrayed Jesus. Well, just put it in, the, in modern terms. What did Jesus say? If you've not done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've not done it to me. Well, okay, how about other Christians that you know? And you had a Christian friend. Did, are you more like Judas? Have you actually betrayed a friend? Told a lie about a friend? Tried to hurt a friend? Are you more like Jesus in the scripture? Or you're more like John. You stand with his friend. He goes right in. He stands right with Jesus while he's being on trial. Gives him that comfort, that assurance. Hey, I'm here for you. Do you like that? Do you stand with your friends? Or are you like more like Peter? You have good intentions. You want to stand with your friends, but guess what? You're weak and you don't. So you hear about your friend, you know, and you're concerned, you want to do something, I'm planning on taking the meal, I'm doing this, I'm planning on it, but guess what? Oh, I'm just too tired, you know, whatever the situation. You're more like Peter. Good intentions, no doubt about it, but you fail. Or are you more like the other people in that courtyard who are sort of um, disinterested observers? They're there. So we hear about somebody in our Sunday school class that is sick. He's sad. I don't really know that person that well, you know. So we're not too much concerned with that. So you have four, four kinds of people. People who betray their friends, people who stand with their friends, people who have good intentions, but end up avoiding their friends. You know, everybody's taking the dish, and next day you see them, and you were the one that didn't, you know. And, Sure, don't want to, you want to avoid them like Peter wants to avoid. Or just disinterested. Ah, so and so. Do you know they're not up? You could care less. That's what we have to decide when we look at a passage like this. And when you think of it in that way, it makes this a very human situation. Because those are the dynamics that are happening right here with Jesus and Peter and John and Judas. Because Judas is standing in there too with them. He's led them right on back. You know, he's in there. Guess who's in there? Judas is in standing near Jesus. And John, the beloved disciple, is standing near Jesus. And he's befriending him. And Peter is standing a little bit of what well, trying to avoid Jesus, but he'd like to do something, but he just didn't do. So this is what's happening, and this is what gets Jesus into the situation. So next week we'll, we're going to see that John picks up. In verse 28, with the trial before Pontius Pilate. 
and we'll finish that up next week. Next scene after that is Jesus is crucified. And then we're going to see that after that, he's resurrected. And we will, by the time Christmas comes, we'll be right at the end of the Gospel of John. We'll be finishing that up and starting something a little bit. That's where we'll start. Lord, I thank you that uh, when we look at something like this, we can look at it just from a historic standpoint and see how Peter failed and how the Judas betrayed and how John stood with him. How others were trying to attract Jesus. And we see all the emotions and we see all the psyches coming out. The interplay of people's minds and devices and hearts and concerns. Where would we be if we were back there 2,000 years ago? The only way we can tell the Lord is how we react toward our friends and people we know today. That's the true reveal. Oh Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Help us to be like John, the beloved disciple. The one who, even when Jesus is crucified, does not forsake you, but stands right there with Mary by his side. His Lord, help us to be comforters. Help us to be your hands extended to people in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> <coughs>